Thanks, Tash. So two words that you need to remember today. First one is joy, and the second one is model. So joy and model. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Tom. Um, I'm the associate minister here, which I'm still not sure what it is. Um, I think it's something along the lines of, if Mark doesn't want to do it, I have to do it. I, I think that's the differentiation. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, you're great and mighty and wonderful, and we thank you for that. Lord, you speak to us, and we thank you for that. And we pray um, that as we get into your word tonight, Father, as we read it, as we think about it, we pray that you would speak to us, Father, that you would change us, and that as you change us, we would learn to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we all care about people, and we all contribute to the lives of people, right? Every single one of us do that. You may not realize that you do that, but we all do that. We all um, care about people, and we all contribute to the lives of people. Now, it could be, if you're a parent and you're here, it could be your children. That's quite a common one. If uh, it could, you're not a parent and you're a bit older, it could be uh, nephews, nieces, uh, godchildren, if you're a godparent. These, these are all people that we put time and effort into. It might be a neighbor. It might be a friend. As you get older, one of the things that happens is uh, roles reverse slightly. So like when you were a parent and you had younger children, you cared for them. All of a sudden, as your parents get older, you start having to care for your parents. So it can flip around like that as well. Whether you're 14 or 104... We all care for people and we all contribute to their lives. Have a think about the people whose life, uh, who the people are whose lives you contribute to. Have a, have a think about that for a moment. If, if you're struggling to work out who that is, here's a good test. Who do I worry about? Those are the people that you care about. Those are the people that you contribute to. Who do I contribute to? Okay, you got somebody? Anybody need more time? No? Outstanding. If you had to summarize what you want for that person or those people's lives, and you had to summarize in one word, what would that be? Have a think about that. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think about that. If you had to... Summarize into one word what you want for those people's lives, what would that word be? Okay, is anybody brave enough to give us an answer? Tell us who the, per the person you were thinking of was or the people you were thinking of were um, and what, what you want for them. Were you trying to dub out James or uh, dub out Sam or... Yeah? Good. Anybody got an answer to give? You want them to flourish. What does flourishing look like? Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah. And why do you want them to be well-rounded and confident? Okay, good. Happy, yeah. Anybody else? A little scratching his nose, desperately trying to not look like he's got his hand up. Yeah, look, I, whenever I have this discussion with people that, that by far the majority of them eventually get to the point where they go, yeah, I just want them to be happy. I want them to be contented. I want them to have joy. I think that's a fair, a fair synopsis people you care about, you want them to have joy. The book of 1 Thessalonians is a book about joy, as, as John said. So John and I are, are going to both be doing some of the sermons in it over the next four weeks while Mark's on holiday. Um, and it's a book about joy and the church. So you look at this church, it wasn't a, a church that everything was perfect for, and yet they had great joy. Why is that? Well, we're going to look at that today. Okay, so who wrote the book? Um, Eliza, could you put up um, that first slide? Yeah, there we go. Who wrote the book? Have a look up there. Tell me what you think. And just yell out the answer. You don't have to put your hand up. <laughs> yeah, Paul Silas and Timothy. I guess it's... Le- it, it's actually a letter. It's, we talk about it being a book of the Bible, but, but it's actually a letter that was written by Paul, Smith, Timothy, and Silas um, to this church at Thessalonica. And um, like all letters of its time, it started off with what we would put at the end. So we go, dear Bob, write the letter, and you're sincerely Harry. In the ancient world, they went Harry to Bob. Did it the other way around. Okay, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote this letter. Uh, Paul, you probably know about. Yeah, pretty much half the New Testament was written by him. Yeah, Timothy. Timothy was a young bloke. If you've have you read the letters of one and two Timothy? If you've read those, that's the same Timothy. So he was a young bloke who went around planting churches with Paul, and then he went on to pastor a church in, I think, Philippi from memory, um, and certainly Philippians um, and 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul and Timothy co-author together um, with with Silas also there in 1 Thessalonians. Who was Silas? Well, we don't know a heck of a lot about Silas. He He was a bloke who went planting churches with Paul and traveled around with Paul Uh, We see a fair bit of him in Acts, but we don't really see him other than passing references um, out of that. So we don't know um, a huge amount about it. Why is it called 1 Thessalonians? Well, it was the first letter, though, some debate about that, that was addressed to a church at a town called Thessalonica. Um, It still exists. It's called Thessaloniki now, and when we talk about it existing... um, it doesn't just exist today. It's, it's actually the second biggest city in Greece. It's 
say Athens is the biggest, and then the next biggest one is uh, Thessalonica, though they call it Thessaloniki today. Though when this letter was written, Thessalonica was a much less influential place. The Romans, for political reasons, although it had been great many years before under, under King Philip and Alexander the Great. You've heard of Alexander the Great? Yeah. So when, when uh, King Philip and his son Alexander the Great were in power, um, Thessaloniki, Thessalonica had been one of the biggest cities um, in their empire. But, but under the Romans, for political reasons, the Romans had divided Macedonia, the, the, the place it was in, into various different, not even provinces, like districts. And at this point in time, Thessalonica was the capital of one of those districts. So it, it had gone down a bit. Now, we do know a little bit about how the church uh, at Thessalonica was planted because we're told in Acts 17. I'm not going to read that to you. You can go and read it at home if you want to. Acts 17, 1 to 10, if you're writing notes down and you want to know that. Um, but I'll tell you the story of how it was planted. You see, what Timothy and Paul and Silas were doing is they were traveling around that whole area, and as they traveled around, they would go into a city. And as they went into the city, they would go to the synagogue. And then Paul would stand up and talk about Jesus, this Messiah, this king who died on the cross, who who could save people. And the Jewish people would sometimes believe, and other times they would not believe, be ambivalent, or get very angry. In the case of Thessalonica, what happens is they go in, as, as is the custom, they go into the synagogue. Um, Paul stands up and preaches that Christ is the Messiah. And some believe so you have some Jewish people and then what we call God-fearers who were, who were Gentiles and so people who were ethnically non-Jewish um, but who believed in the Jewish God who, who came in and were a part of that community um, and, and worshipped God like Jewish people did but weren't ethnically Jewish. So both groups in that synagogue, you guys know what a synagogue is? Like a, a Jewish church is probably the best way to put it. Um, both groups in the synagogue, people from both groups were converted and became Christian. But not everybody was entirely happy. Some of the people were quite mad, in fact. And a riot breaks out in the city, and they arrest Paul and, and Silas. We don't know. Timothy isn't spoken about, so perhaps he wasn't arrested. Perhaps he escaped. Um, but Paul and Silas are arrested, and they have to smuggle them out of the city that night. So... Um, oh, there we are. So going back to 1 Thessalonians, it seems that by the time this letter had been written, the church had moved on a bit. The church had moved on from being a Jewish church to being a, a, a culturally very mixed church. Um, we know that. Uh, Eliza, could you turn to the last slide, please? We know that because if we look at 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, what we see... Well, you tell me. What tells us that they moved on a bit in 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter no, uh, verse 9? Anybody got any ideas? Worshipping these wrong? Idols, yeah. So Jewish people didn't worship idols. 
They're worshiping idols, they were Gentiles, so if they turned from worshiping idols, they must have been Gentiles as well. Logical? Yeah? So this, this multi-ethnic church made up of all sorts of people, that would describe the church at Thessalonica. But it was a church that was suffering as well, despite the joy that they had. And you can see that in verse 6. We'll get that up and I'll also read it to you. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. What those sufferings were in particular, we don't know. Can't answer that. We, we can say that, um, that the church flourished in a very, very horrific, back, uh, very, very horrific place. So... You know, now we have the secular world and the religious world, right? So if you want to take part in politics, you've almost got to hide your religiousness. In those days, there was no such distinction. The, the civil life, your secular life, and your religious life were, were compacted together. Why was this a problem? Well, if you wanted to be a part of society, if you wanted to take part in things like the citizens' assemblies, kind of... Uh, town hall meetings, I suppose we call them today. If you wanted to take part in those, you, you would need to be prepared to sacrifice to the god of the city. You would need to sacrifice to the emperor. So if you were Christian and you went along to one of those, you would have to do something that you really didn't believe in in order to be a part of it. And then if you were Jewish and became a Christian, so the Jews got around that just by not taking part in the religious life of the city. So you'd have all these guys who were Jewish and then became Christians, and, well, the story I told you from Acts tells you how they were treated. They, they weren't really, from what we can see, that welcome uh, in the synagogues anymore. So on that level alone, we can say they suffered. What sufferings they went through beyond that, we don't know, but certainly it was enough for um, Paul and Timothy and Silas I'm just going to say poor from now on and summarize that so we don't go insane, um, repeating it all the time. Um, but Paul says that you had this joy despite your severe suffering. So clearly what they were going through had a big impact on them. And yet Paul was able to talk about their joy, which is good for us because the one thing that we want is more joy. I don't know of anybody that says I want less joy. And lots of people that say I want more joy. Now, the thing with joy is that its longevity is determined by the longevity of the thing that brings you joy. If you get joy from something, that joy is only going to last as long as that thing lasts. So one of the things that brings me great joy is my nephew and my niece. I love hanging out with them. Most of the time. Um, I don't get to hang out with them a lot because, as some of you all know, some of you won't, uh, they live in South Africa. I clearly don't live in South Africa. So I see them like once every year, once every two years, I'll, I'll go and spend a bit of time with them. The rest of the time, I don't see them. And if I want to communicate with them, I have to pick up the phone, which is a little bit of a problem because time zones and bedtimes and school and all that kind of stuff. So when they get home from school, I'm asleep. If they go to school, it's too early in the morning for me to phone them between when they're up and 
and when they're at school, except on their birthday. I get away with phoning them first thing in the morning on their birthday, so I often do that. I pick up the phone, and my brother and sister-in-law can deal with the grumpy. No, they don't get grumpy with me. They're fine with it. <laughs> but I don't feel bad. But I love speaking to them, and I think they love speaking to me. But at the end of the day, I'm conscious that the joy I get from that even the joy I get from those relationships, even the joy I get from those relationships of two children that are very close to me are only ever going to be temporary. I mean, things happen, right? People die. Relationships. Relationships get broken. People fall out with each other. Things change. And when they change, the joy of speaking to them can just as easily become the pain of not being able to. And what then? The joy from stuff is even less permanent. Get a car, that car gets old. If you're like me, it gets smashed up five days after you bought it. I bought a brand new car Five days after I bought it, I I was backing out of a parking space and took it, and there were pillars on on the driver's side, and I took out the entire side of the car. (laughs) I cried. (laughs) You can understand that. You buy a car, it doesn't stay in you forever. Things get rusty, they get damaged, they get old, they get dated, they get smashed. You're washing your hands. And that ring that you put on your finger that you cherish because of what it represents, the marriage that you've entered into, you're washing your hands, you don't take it off, and it goes down the sink. It's gone. Houses burn down, and there's been Australia float away sometimes. Banks go bust. Economies get destroyed. Greece, we're looking at you. And if that's where our joy is, if that's where our joy is, there's a very good chance of us being miserable sooner or later. So if we have joy in something, we've got to have joy in something that endures. That's the only way that we can have joy that is eternal. So why is it, verse 6, that the Christians at Thessalonica responded to the message that Paul preached, even though they were suffering with joy. I think it's because the message that they received, the the message of the gospel, the message that they believed because of the Holy Spirit, that message promised something that was eternal. Have a look at verse 3. Paul lays out that message and what happened because of the message. Remember before, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith, love, and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? It it should. It's all over the Bible. Faith, hope, and love. Sometimes, uh, sorry, sorry, faith, love, and hope. Sometimes it's faith, hope, and love. When Paul uses those three words together, that's him describing what the gospel is. 
So if somebody asked you what a Christian believes, what would you say to them? What does a Christian believe? Not a trick question. Jesus, the cross, rising from the dead, yeah? Is that wrong? No, no, that's absolutely right. But I think a great way to describe the gospel to people is faith, love, and hope. Why do I think it's great? Because it's short. Short is always good. Because it describes what we need to do with the gospel as well in a way that simply describing it as Jesus on the cross doesn't. So this is what I mean by it. Here's faith for you. Faith means I trust in Jesus' death for me, in my place. Love. Love, I know that God loves me because Jesus died for me. Three, hope. I know that Jesus is alive and will rescue me from the coming wrath, and I'll be with God forever. Faith, hope, uh, love, and hope. Now, hope here, just by the by, hope here is used differently to the way that we would use hope. When we use hope, we use it to express something that we want. So I hope that when I get home, there will be ice cream. Yeah? Is there going to be ice cream? Be nice. I hope. It's something I want. It's something I want. Actually, it's not something I want. It's sugar. Sugar's not good. (laughs) The way hope is used in the Bible is to express something that you know is going to happen. I hope that the sermon will end sometime. The sermon's going to end sometime in about 18 pages. I'm about halfway through. I'm, I'm, I'm 22 out of 40. We're almost there. So that's why I said, I know, instead of, I think, or I hope, when I use the description of what hope is for a Christian. Hope is a certain thing when it's used in the Bible. And here's the effect of the message. Work, labor, and endurance. Faith, love, and hope lead to work, labor, and endurance. And what I don't want you to do is see it as as faith leading to work and love leading to labor and hope leading to endurance. Faith, hope, and love together lead to work, labor, and endurance together. So what is work, what is labor, what is endurance? Um, So like many Greek words, you can use them to describe a whole bunch of things. So the word ergon for work, used for work, is it can describe what you do on a day-to-day basis, as in the job that you go to. But it can also mean charity. So serving other people. I think that's what Paul had in mind here. Labor, what is labor? It's hard graft. So the word that's translated labor can also mean cut. In other words... It's work that takes its toll on you. So, work, serving people. Labor at a cost. What about endurance? 
the Energizer Bunny, carrying on and on and on and on and on. Yeah? So, so there's a, a, a little twist here. You know the Energizer Bunny's always happy? Yeah? It's always bouncing around going, woo Did it beat them? Um, when we look at endurance in, um, the word endurance in, in Greek, it's not just the idea of carrying on, but the idea of carrying on joyfully. So if we want real joy, even in suffering, where is it found? It's found in the gospel of Jesus, in faith, in love, and in hope. Because faith, love, and hope cause us to continually serve joyfully and at a great cost. Which is really counterintuitive, isn't it? You, you walk out into Downing Street, actually, if you walked out into Downing Street now, there'd probably be nobody there. But say you were there when the markets were on and you walked out into Darling Street and you started asking random people, what do you think you need to do to be happy? They would probably start talking about being true to themselves, doing things that make them happy. Jesus kind of goes the other way around with this. Paul goes the other way around with this. Faith, hope, and love lead to work, labor, and endurance. Jesus dies in your place. God loves you. And you'll know you'll get an eternity with God because Jesus died for you and he's alive. And that will cause you to serve others and him and you'll have great joy. Okay, so that was joy. Here's model. Have a look at verses six to eight, please. I'm going to read them to you. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Have you ever noticed how children are really good mimics? They do what they see you do. So, so you're gardening, right? And you just want to get it done. What does your child do? They come and help. It's not really helping. It takes longer. Or you're cooking, and they come and help, and you know it's going to take you twice as long to clean up. Or, and this is usually fairly okay, except they start asking questions. You're sitting there working from home, and they come and they work next to you and ask you why, why, why. But kids are are great mimics. There's an advert in South Africa, which couldn't have been a great advert because... I can't remember what it was for. It was like soft white bread or margarine or something like that. Um, But there was this really cute little kid in it um, who was having lunch with his granddad. And they made sandwiches together, made their tea together, and, and the kid was mimicking everything that granddad did. He had to have his sandwich cut exactly the same way. Uh, when he drank his tea, he drank it out with his pinky out, just like grandpa did. When he sat down, he did exactly what Grandpa did, dressed exactly the same way, of course. 
lifted up the hem of his pants as he crossed his legs the exact same way that Grandad did. Did all of this and was happy until he smiled at Grandad and Grandad smiled back. And then you notice something. You notice that the little boy had no front teeth. Yep. Front teeth lost as little happens to little boys. Um, and, and Grandad had a full set of teeth. But have no fear, Grandad sorts it out, reaches into his mouth, takes his dentures out, and lo and behold, he doesn't have any front teeth either. And all of a sudden, the little boy is happy. Kids are great imitators. Poyle says that it is great when Christians are imitators too. Paul thought it was pretty wonderful that the Thessalonian Christians were imitating him and Silas and Timothy. And as they did that, they were actually imitating God because who was it that Paul and Silas and Timothy imitated? Jesus, yeah. So they imitated Jesus. Thessalonian Christians looked at them and imitated them. How did they do that? How did they imitate uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy? Well, they imitated them by accepting the message despite the sufferings that they were going through. And they did it with great joy given by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God the Holy Spirit showed them um, that the joy that comes when they have faith and love and hope that leads to work, labor, and endurance. They saw how Paul and Timothy and Silas lived and they copied them. And here's the best bit. They then became the model for other believers in the region that they were in. And not only the region they were in, in Macedonia, but Achaia. So if you look at a map of Greece, the top half is Macedonia, the bottom half is Achaia. They lived in the top half. So they became a model not only to the people in the top half of Greece, but the bottom half of Greece and everywhere. <laughs> Didn't just stop there, it went everywhere. Word for models, uh, topon, could mean a couple of things, two of them relevant to us. A topon was something that you made that was designed to be copied. So, so an example is a clay jar. If you wanted people to make clay jars, what you would do is get somebody who is particularly skilled, you get them to make a clay jar, and you go and stick it in front of them and go, that's the prototype. I want you to make all your jars like that one. And then everybody could go and measure it and see it and see what it needed to look like and produce jars like that. The second meaning of topon is a mold. So what they would do is take um, plaster and they would cut a design into the plaster and then they'd take soft clay and press it into the design. And you could do that over and over and over again and you'll get an exact copy of what was there just in reverse. In both cases, the point was to exactly replicate what you had. The Thessalonians got the gospel that Paul preached so well that they became the exact model for all the believers all around them in, in Macedonia and Achaia, um, so the entirety of what would have been Greece today, and then everywhere. And here's something to blow your mind. As we read 1 Thessalonians, they become the model for us as well. As we look how they lived, as we look at what they believed, 
they actually become the model for us. So we look at them, we model what they do, and we're actually imitating Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are imitating Jesus 2,000 years later. It's a bit mind-blowing, I think. Why is this all so wonderful? Because if you think back to my question right at the beginning, we all influence people. Every single one of us influence people. We're a model, whether we like it or not. The only question is, what kind of model are you going to be? A, a model that represents Jesus as he actually is? Or something that's a bit more distorted? Imagine for a second that you're a master putter who's asked to make a vase as a model. So you set out to make your vase, and you finish it, but it's actually not a perfect shape. It's a bit lopsided. But you go, that's fine. Nobody will notice. So you fire it, and then you go and read the next set of instructions, and, and they say, I want it royal blue. So you go to your paint cupboard, and you look for royal blue, only there's no royal blue. The only royal blue you've got has got a bit of turquoise in it. So it's kind of the right color, but not the right color. Um, but you go, that's all I've got, and that will have to do, and you go and paint it. And then you read the instructions again, and the instructions say um, it needs to have a horse on it. So you get more paint, and you start painting a horse onto it, only you're not a very good artist, and your horse ends up looking like a cow. But you take the vase, you're going to put it on the table, and you say to everybody, there's, there's the prototype, there's the model, you copy that. What's going to happen? It's not going to look right, right? You're copying something that's incorrect. If the people that copy it do what they're supposed to do, they're going to have a lopsided, wrong-colored, cow-pictured vase instead of the real thing. We may be the only model of Jesus that people ever see. What kind of model are you? How do you represent Jesus? Okay, so I've got three applications as we end off. Two, two of them have to do with joy, and one of them has to do with model. Here's the first one. You ready for it? Here's the first one. So, enjoy everything God's given you. Enjoy all the toys he's given you. Enjoy all the people he's put in your life. All the things that bring you joy, enjoy them. But remember where real joy is found. Real joy is found in the message of the gospel. It's found in faith. It's found in love. It's found in hope. Okay, second one. If you find yourself struggling to serve in the church, if you find you're burnt out, the problem is not usually you. And it's usually not the people around you. It could be how much you're doing or, or what you're doing. But mostly, when we find we're getting burnt out in the church, it's because we've lost sight of the faith, hope, and love stuff. Remember, it's faith, hope, and love that causes us to, to work, to labor, and to endure. So when you lose sight of that, 
becomes far more difficult to serve. So if you're in that position, if you're feeling burnt out, if you're feeling exhausted by what you're asked to do, take some time out, not to do nothing, but take some time out to go back to Romans, to go back to the Gospels and read about what God has done for you in Jesus. Because that's what was sorted out. And come tell me. I want to know. I care. I want to know. I want to chat to you about it and help you through it. I want you to be joyful. But the antidote to burnout in the church is not doing less. It's knowing Jesus more. Number three. We all model something. Each one of us have people looking at us. When they look at you, what do they see? Do they see Jesus as he is, or do they see a different Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Father, as we think about what we've heard tonight, we pray that you would minister to us and speak to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make Jesus real to us and change us. And Father, we pray that you would grant us joy. In his name we pray it. Amen.